In midst of woods or pleasant grove, where all sweet birds do sing, methought I heard so rare a sound which made the heavens to ring. Trees can lift the spirit and refresh the soul. A wood can become a cathedral and a grove of trees a sanctuary that offers peace and protection. Like guardian angels, they stand tall and strong, while we wonder at their thought-provoking grandeur. These are places that have a different pace to the kind of time scale that most human beings have. We're, we're very much governed by the clock, because we have to. We have to organise it that way. But when you go into a wood, the time scale is much, much, much slower. You know, the unit of time is in years, not in minutes. What I get uh, is this feeling of um, quiet dignity about trees and their, you know, their colossal size compared to a human lifespan. They're, they're so permanent. and It's hard to credit, you know. I think it's exhilarating sometimes to think that you could be next to a tree which, is, which has remained in that spot for maybe hundreds and hundreds of years and, uh, you know, whole generations of human life and history has passed by and that tree is still in the same position. And they promote life all their own, the birds and spores and the fungi, lichens and everything. Mm. They have a life cycle all their own, particularly this time of the year where you can see the fruit falling from the leaves changing colour. You get all uptight in the house and things are going wrong, or problems. Go out and walk under the trees. No, you'll come in at peace. Even to walk in the trees in the winter with the wind blowing, to me it's like the sea, like a rough sea, and it is very, very restful. In our time, things have speeded up at an unprecedented rate. For centuries and eons before that, the cycle of nature was the rhythm to which man responded. Now the tempo of the city seems to make the rhythm of nature redundant. Many people, distanced from the natural world, are less inclined to seek the wonder in a tree or the peace and contentment that can be found in the woods. But many others can still find magic in our trees. They draw you to them, like, you know. You'll always admire a tree, no matter where you see it. I can hug a tree. I, 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 Any time I'm in sorrow, trouble on me, and I say, why, you're not alone, because God is in the tree. I love trees. I met for trees. <laughs> I think people relate to trees in the same way that they relate to uh, domestic animals. You can fall in love with trees. Trees are a very beautiful thing, and they're, you know, they have endless possibilities. Our ancestors depended on the woods for most of their needs. They were economically important and they were the first holy places. The sacred tree and the fairy ring are still acknowledged. Ireland was once almost completely covered by mixed broadleaf forest, chiefly oak. Now it is the least forested country in Europe, with just a few scattered remnants of our native woods still standing. Killarney is famous for its woodlands. Uh, if we look across out over Loch Lane here in front of us, um, we're looking at the famous native oak woodlands of Killarney, the, the natural forests. And these, these, this particular one that we're looking at there, the forest of Tomies, is uh, one of the largest remaining fragments of our native oak woodlands. Cormac Foley. These unique woodlands are a national treasure and have been widely studied by plant ecologists. Through a process of regeneration, this natural woodland has survived here for thousands of years. The primary one would be the oak, 
the, the oak forest, the oak woodlands, and the holly, which is the understory, the natural understory of the oak, with the two leading na native things. Then we have the, the unique yew woodland, which we visited. Um, the yew would be native here. And the arbutus. Most of our ancestors' needs were supplied by the woods, and the first Irish alphabet was uniquely grounded in trees. Woods have always offered succour and sustenance, and solitude in the woods is never as frightening as solitude in the city. Trees constitute one of the basic images in children's fiction, in fables and legend. The whole idea of woodland is an image of enchantment, the whole idea of a wood as both a dark and a warm place. Waterford poet Tom McCarthy. A wood somehow is uh, an image of the womb, is an image of warmth, is a mother image. You know, but many urban people are, are frightened by the idea of dusk in woodland, you know, and by the fact that there are sort of mo there is movement in the undergrowth and things like this. You know, it's a kind of sinister image. Whereas I think country people are much happier, you know. And the thing uh, about uh, to remember too is that. The, there is an organic, if you like, an organic relationship between Irish literature and woodland. The Irish alphabet is also the list of the, the indigenous trees. And I find that a most um, amazing uh, and real relationship between the literature and the topography of the land, you know. Between, really between words and trees. For example, the letter B is uh, denominated by Betha, which is the Irish for the birch tree, uh, similarly, the letter L by Lish, which is the old Irish for the round. Similarly, uh, the letter N by Nin, the old name for the ash. So, the, in fact, the name for the alphabet in old Irish was Bethelish Nin, in the order in which the letters appeared in in Ogham. Historian Donaka O'Hroin. And, of course, the name, the name for a letter is Fid, meaning wood. Originally, a lot of Ogham writing was done in wood. And originally, of course, these uh, alphabetical names are the names for the letters in Ogham. And then that was transferred when they became, a, when they actually started writing down in the Latin alphabet. Of course, early men were so dependent on, uh, on the woods. Well, that's right, but uh, of course the early Irish, like all the early uh, peoples of Western Europe were, and they carefully categorised the woods. They, they divided the, the, the trees and shrubs of the woods into four categories. The noblemen of the wood, the noblemen of the wood were oak, holly, yew, you because they made domestic vessels out of it, especially for milk production. Ash, which they said was for the support of a royal thigh and the half material of a weapon. That is to say, they made furniture out of it, especially the king's chair and, of course, the spear shafts. And they put a high value on, on these trees. Uh, again, hazel, even though it's a small shrub, was a nobleman of the wood for its nuts and its rods, because they used the rods for weaving. And, of course, the hazel rod was supposed to also be a, the best rod for water divining and for all sorts of other magical activities. Then they have the peasants of the wood, the, the commoners of the wood, uh, uh, the alder, the willow, the aspen. The aspen because they use this light white wood to make bowls and, and spindles. Then, of course, there are the lower divisions of the wood, the proletariat of the wood, blackthorn, which also included probably wild damsons, elder, spindle trees, white beam, arbutus, very rare except in the, in the west and south. Aspen, juniper. Of course, they use juniper to flavour meat, the juniper berries. And then, of course, the bushes, bracken, bog myrtle, firs. They simply weren't depending on wild woods. They were depending on coppiced woods. They talk about the little, the little oak trees 
and it's perfectly plain that they're coppicing them in order to grow straight beams for housemaking and so on. And the penalties for um, trespass and damage in another man's wood are very high, a, a factor, of course, that indicates how economically important they were. For example, for damaging a nobleman of the wood belonging to somebody else, the penalty, that's the fine for doing such a damage, is two and a half milking cows. And apart from that, you had to pay compensation. And the compensation depends on the amount of damage you did. For cutting a branch, a year-old heifer. What period are we talking about then? We're talking about Ireland in the 7th and 8th centuries. Uh, we're talking about a period in which there's highly intensive agriculture. And, of course, wood is used for enormous varieties of things. The Druids, of course, uh, and the magic, um, the spirit world associated with trees. Oh, yes, well, the word druid itself, of course, is, uh, ha uh, has the word faith in it, the word meaning wood. And you have Gaulish Drew Nemeton, uh, and you have, of course, a Nemeton, meaning a sacred grove, which occurs in Celtic and gives you the Irish word Nevith, which is uh, the word for a sacred person. Usually, ironically enough, in the laws of the 7th and 8th centuries applied to the higher clergy. But the original sacred associations, of course, are with pagan sacred woods. Coopering uh, was a very big trade, barrel making, and made largely of oak for, for the wine casks. And the craftsmen, the coopers, moved into the woods uh, with, uh, with their families and uh, worked for, for most of the summer months, felling oaks and working on them right inside the wood. Similarly, you had um, very great activity in shipbuilding and preparing of oak. Oak was very widely used in shipbuilding and the smelting, smelting of iron. So you had great destruction of the forests. The town became a weaver of trees. Coopers made kegs for butter. Wives cut lace patterns in butter pats. Women stripped sallies bare. The trees were losing their secret life to give gold and succor. I think that the significant period is the period after the, um, the 17th century conquest when enormous amounts of Irish wood were cut down to provide oak for the British Navy and also to provide firewood for mining adventures that were going on particularly in the southwest. The deforestation of Ireland is essentially a product of the 17th to the 19th centuries. And we wound up, of course, by being the most deforested country in Western Europe. Now what will we do for timber with the last of the woods laid low? There's no talk of Kilcash or its household and its bell will be struck no more. There's no holly nor hazel nor ash here, but pastures of rock and stone. The crown of the forest is withered, and the last of its game is gone. This is a Mount Desert woodland on the Lee Road. 
one of the oldest uh, woodlands near Cork City. Amateur botanist Tony O'Mahony. Here we have an intermixture of uh, coniferous trees and broadleaf, and that's exactly what we're going to, to look at. You'll find it quite dull in here, Dan. Up far, further now, Dan, we'll come to a more uh, open canopy, and you'll see the change in the actual ground cover. What's interesting about uh, this particular woodland is that, really, it remains uh, quite good, semi-natural, you know. It's retained its old character. Because this is a very, um, this woodland goes back to antiquity and once extended as far as Blarney Street, as far as I can make Right it. into the heart of Cork City yes, as it exactly. developed. So it's, um, you've got this lovely continuity going back through a historical time. And that's something you can't say from, from many areas where woodland has been obliterated. It's difficult to get the, uh, you know, to get the balance of mature woodland and a good rich flora. I'm afraid that um, Ireland sadly lacks in, in this... Uh, in, in rich woodland floras, it's, um, it's, not, it's not really a, a characteristic feature of, of our uh, woodlands. That uh, largely is because of the, um, the chopping down of woodland in the past and, of course, access by cattle as well. Each woodland is different. I mean, it's like human beings. Uh, the, each woodland has a character of, of its own. And I think with woodlands especially, there's a kind of an air of timelessness about a good woodland. You know, apart from this kind of cathedral quietness, which is invigorating to anyone who has a, an interest in peace and quiet, and um, that aspect of it, of woodlands is, is particularly important in an area like here, where, where you have people recuperating from illnesses, and they need the, uh, they need the extra oxygen provided by woodlands, and they need that, the extra, if you like... Uh, Spiritual strength? Yeah, they are... Uh, of uh, the woodland, I mean, it is uplifting because even in, in America in uh, the old days, American Indians knew well the power of many trees to, uh, to give them uh, energy and if uh, people were sick or particularly old and feeble uh, certain species of trees were embraced and the energy which came up from the ground towards, uh, up through the bowl of the trunk was, if, if you like, it was tapped and this energy uh, replenished the natural energy of the human body. I can hug a tree. I, 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 Any time I'm in sorrow, trouble on me, and I say, why, you're not alone, because God is in the tree. I, I pass the tree, and, and spontaneously, I, I want to answer to it for being there, and it's the work of God's creation. And um, it brings me close. It really makes me feel very spiritual. And uh, I feel I really at times want to put some of the leaves over me and go out where there's rushes and twine them and put them around my head and uh, tell people we should do a, an earth dance as, like, as a mark of reverence for the earth. And um, I think in that way we are, um, in a way, spreading um, the joy of creation and, and the work of God. We cannot escape from the earth. I mean, people throughout history have been very aware um, of the powers of nature, you know. In fact, it's, on, it's only in recent years that we, we have become blind to um, how close man is integrated with everything else. I just find myself comfortable around trees, and if I'm anxious or if I'm um, upset about something, yeah, more and more I will go and sit in a tree or under a tree and in talking and in, not necessarily even verbalise it out loud but in my mind just go through the, as I understand it what, what's 
what I'm bothering myself with, what I'm mm-hmm. what I'm upset about. Um, yeah, I find um, that I relax, and I seem at times to get a clarity, a calmness in me. So I go uncertain and broken, and if I sit at this tree, it's as if I take from it this peace which I project onto it in the beginning. The question I have then is, okay, is, is uh, if I'm seen doing this, if I talk about this, yes, people will say this is extraordinarily odd, you know, talking to trees. Um, and the fact is, for me, that, that yeah, I, I can get reassurance. I feel very peaceful. It's, um, it, it's, it's a feeling of getting away from, uh, you know, ordinary turmoil of day, day-to-day existence. And um, that is one of the... I think that's why people are attracted to uh, woodland areas. Is it, it, it tends to cut out, uh, to deaden the, the sound of traffic and noise and so on, and it lets you think, and you can just kind of, you know, uh, replenish your... And energies by walking through. But of course, if you know something about what grows there, it adds enormously to the benefits derived from uh, woodland trips. What are your feelings when you're close to trees, when you're on your own in a woodland? Well, I think everyone's feeling about, about trees is that it's a sense of permanence. I mean, most trees have a lifespan of at least 150 years. Many run into thousands of years. And uh, I'm talking on a moral scale. So next to that, uh, a human lifespan of, say, we say, an average of 70 years is insignificant, you know. And therefore, we tend to look on trees with awe, and they give us a feeling of, of timelessness. The difference now coming out into the, into the light is quite amazing, isn't it? It looks... The city, city looks the quite beautiful there. The moon over Cork there. City, that's beautiful yeah. now, isn't mm, it? Looks quite nice. Even uh, the amber lighting in, in the Bishopstone area is pleasant enough. When the town emerged from the woods, it had one cynical thought, one neutral stance. Too many royal squabbles had burned houses and demolished walls with torches and ordnance. There was too much of this, from the Desmond Wars to the army of Inchiquin seen from the dense oak wood while we were being born in the trees. Most of the big broad-leafed trees that we see around the countryside were planted about a hundred years ago by the owners of the large private estates. Now they cut them down and sell the timber or the land is sold to developers who clear the woods. The whine of the chainsaw is increasingly heard as our heritage of amenity trees falls to the ground. We have an ideal climate for growing trees, the best in Europe, yet we are the least planted. But there may be a new interest in our trees, if recent newspaper headlines are an indicator. March the 6th, on Tashka says local authorities are engaged in wholesale felling of trees along main roads in an overreaction to accidents. March 17th, National Tree Planting Week begins with President Hillary planting a tree at Oris Nukteroin. April 14th, land unproductive for agriculture could be profitable through forestry, Galway Conference told. May 14th, Dublin Corporation expected to take legal action against builders over tree felling near Bull Island. August 3rd, state policy on timber criticised by Formoy Development Association following collapse of local factory. And back in March, emotional scenes as local people make an unsuccessful effort 
to prevent developers felling mature trees at Dorney Court, Shankill, County Dublin. And we stood by and very emotionally cried as the trees fell. The trees were a woodland. It wasn't just a tree here and there. there were, it was an actual woodland. And the woodland we considered our heritage. And we were very much annoyed at the idea that a man could come out from the county council office and watch this happening. And we could do nothing about it. We got the police down and he stood by and done nothing about it. As far as we're concerned, the law was broken. I stood and cried. My back garden is now an absolute open entity. There is nothing standing at the back of my garden. I was completely protected by a beautiful belt of trees and now I have a lady standing at her back door waving to me and she's so close to me it's unbelievable. This man didn't even decide to put up a fence. It is absolutely unbelievable to have a look at what's happened at the back of Fox's Grove in Shankill. I spent my summers in my back garden watching the squirrels run up and down the trees. It was the most beautiful, natural thing to have at the back of your house. And when I bought the house, I bought it knowing there was a prevention order on the trees. The preservation order was there that nobody could ever touch them. Normally speaking, trees uh, filter the environment, and by that I mean they take the, the poison that we throw at them in the form of carbon monoxide and sulfurous oxide and the likes, and uh, filter that, and they hand us back in return oxygen. Not only do they do that, but they shelter us in the summertime, and they provide us with fuel in the form of dead wood when they die in wintertime. And if more people were concerned with regard to their attention and regard to their, their planting, you and I might not be talking about the obvious problems that are in the country with regard to the vandalism and the indiscriminate felling of trees. When an Irishman sees a tree, he thinks of a chainsaw. He doesn't think of the oxygen that's made, of the carbon dioxide that the tree transforms into oxygen, because we, we live together, we humans and the trees. The trees inhale carbon dioxide, which we exhale. So we belong. You've been living in Ireland, Tony, eight years. Do you right. find the Irish attitude to... The environment and trees in particular is quite different to what you've experienced in Holland and other countries in Europe? Well, a farmer is a farmer. You see, a farmer wants land. So when he sees trees in, in a field, he cuts them down. But every farmer that has been here and spoken to me said, why don't you cut down all those trees? That's the first they always say. Why don't you cut down all those trees? Again, he sees the trees and there's the chainsaw in his, in his brain, you know? That's what he sees straight away. How does it that compare with other European countries? 
Oh, it's uh, controlled. I mean, in Holland, you plant a tree. When it's three years old, by law, you're forbidden to cut it. It's not your own anymore. It's part of, uh, of the atmosphere. So you can't do it. But in Germany, it's a strict law. You cut one tree, you plant two. I mean, this tree here, take it now, friends. If I would take a chainsaw and cut it down, nobody would say, shame. Only my own conscience, of course. This tree is much more than I am. It lives longer, it is much stronger, it does more for the atmosphere, uh, everything. I mean, I'm part of a species that destroys the atmosphere, and he's part of a species that builds the atmosphere. But the first thing I come across when I'm talking the way I'm talking to you now is they think he's a loony. He's an idealistic loony, which I'm not, and I can tell you that. I'm a very cynical old man, but uh, that's what people think. Because you see part of nature and you admire it and you even love it, uh, that's the wrong thing to do. It seems. And how come? I don't know. This tree was here when my grandfather was born, I'm sure. And it will be here when my grandchildren are born, I hope. The felling of trees is controlled by the 1946 Forestry Act. Anybody wishing to cut down a tree has to get a felling license. But most people aren't even aware that a felling license exists or simply choose to ignore it. Farmers often fell roadside trees unnecessarily because the local authority points out that they are responsible should an accident occur. And what about large estates that can cut down up to 500 acres of trees in one area? Michael O'Donovan of the Forestry Department. It changes the whole character of a locality when uh, a huge strike of broadleaf forest like that is clear-felled. Do you think the Forestry Department should make people more aware that they have a right to cry halt when this is happening? Well, uh, this is what I hold, that uh, the, the Forest and Wildlife Service does maintain control where uh, the issue of a license for uh, felling of timber is concerned. But uh, any question of retaining the trees for amenity purposes is a matter for the local authority. I, I certainly believe in trying to strike a compromise, a balance between the need to safeguard the environment, the need to protect and preserve our amenities, and the legitimate needs of the farmer. Um, the, his requirements for good land management, for land drainage. Patricia Power, Cork County Council. And in many cases, in most cases, I would say, we do find that the farmer is willing to compromise, perhaps uh, leave this stand of trees and remove another, leave a group of trees and remove some others, so that you don't get an absolute annihilation of the, of the trees in that particular area. Between us, between the F Department of Forestry and ourselves, I think we give the, a farmer fair advice 
on um, how to strike that balance between the amenity and between his farming needs. Do you often get complaints from the public about the uh, felling of trees? I think public awareness on the, on the value of trees, the uh, um, amenity value of trees, is increasing. And um, even in the last year, we have noticed an increase in reports of unauthorised tree felling. I think a lot of people are becoming more aware. I think the indiscriminate tree feller, if you want to call it that, um, might not be becoming more aware, but they're certainly um, aware that uh, they're being um, noted by the public. The two executioners stalk along over the knolls, bearing two axes with heavy heads shining and wide, and a long, limp, two-handled saw toothed for cutting great bowls. And so they approach the proud tree that bears the death mark on its side. It hurts me. If people went out and did it properly, they got permission to take down a tree and they agreed to plant four or maybe more other little saplings that would eventually replace that tree, I would be happy. I'd be quite content with that. There were sort of, there were quits with God, if you like. There were quits with the Creator. They took some and they gave some and it kind of balanced out over a couple of years. More trees are now being planted in city and town parks and greater numbers of people go out and enjoy them. The National Botanic Gardens offers an oasis in the heart of Dublin. The rush of city fades as one enters the softer environment of leaves, plants and trees. Well, the main, the main function of a botanic gardens, of course, is to grow as many species of plants as is possible, subject to limitation by soil and climate. Uh, in the case of the trees, you, you try and uh, group all the trees together from, from whatever part of the world, you know, they happen to, to come from and uh, ones which will, will be suitable for our climate. For example, here, just in front of us, we see the, the, the group of birches. There's perhaps 50 or 60 uh, different types of birch and they all go together. There are a number of native ones, but the native ones come together here with the, with the exotic ones from, from China, Japan and North America and where, where you have. Farther on then you get the acers, sycamores, maples, call them what you will. They they're all belong to the same family. And the poplars and the hollies and the alders and, and so on, they're, they're all grouped together here in this portion of the gardens, which, which we generally call the arboretum. A lot of pine trees now here on our right-hand yeah, side as we're walking. Yeah. This, this, this particular area here we're talking about was Pine Hill, uh, so-called because, you know, all the pines are growing here, all the conifers. You see, that's the, the weeping cedar, and that's the upright, main, the upright cedar, the, the common one, yeah. That's like a waterfall of green there, isn't it? It is. They look it is. beautiful. It is. That's especially when the sun is shining on it like that. That's, that dates from about 1890. There's a, there's a nice little thing. There was a red square oh, yes. in the middle of the city. Director Aidan Brady is pleased that so many school groups are now visiting the Botanic Gardens. But one difficulty for them would seem to be 
that the scientific name only identifies a tree. Nowhere are the popular names like beech or ash to be seen. In London, in the famous Kew Gardens, there has been a huge increase also in the number of visitors in recent years. Simon Goodenough. The trees, the diversity of the trees, is something that people are beginning to relate to again. Uh, and the sheer numbers of school children that are being brought to Kew now, the increase of this type of party is obviously brought about by the awareness of people who've lived, that is the teachers, have lived through a period of time where things were getting faster and faster. They're almost insistent that they bring their children along to get a feeling of nature, because quite obviously um, urban areas are devoid of a lot of nature. Human environments are hard. They're straight-lined, they're hard and resonant and unchanging. And trees exactly opposite. They tend to be soft, leaves flutter, or they soften the resonance of noise and they soften the bouncing of heat off pavings and so on. They're, they're exactly what's wanted to offset the hardness of our town environment. Dendrologist Alan Mitchell spends most of his time with tape measure in hand, measuring the trees of Britain and Ireland. He concentrates on the introduced species, mostly conifers, and thoroughly enjoys the huge task of identifying and measuring the growth rate of these enormous trees. Well, I call it National Tree Register, but that's partly to make it sound good. It's really an obsession of mine to uh, the sort of grand list-making, but it's of some national use in that I try to find every tree of interest in Britain. Obviously, I can't finish it in my lifetime, but uh, I've started it. I've got about 65,000 so far. Some of those are historical records of which the tree no longer exists, but on the whole, I'm, I'm not obviously the ones I'm adding are all the ones that are around. I like to know their locality and the size, age where possible, and their size, height, and girth. And of course, when I say that you can trace up the history of all introduced trees that's uh, overstating the case because I'm dealing with something like 1,800 species and another 1,000 forms of those because we, uh, Britain as a whole, the British Isles, Ireland and Great Britain are incomparably the finest collection of trees in the world and we have them all, or we have them nearly all and they're uh, of that temperate trees and we grow them faster and better than most places in the world What's your own feeling when you're close to your favourite place, a uh, favourite tree, or, or just walking through a, a wooded glade? Well, I'm a bit maniacal, you know, and I tend to have a tape in my hand and a hypsometer for measuring the heights, and I'm rushing around. My chief thing is to, can I, how much of this can I get done before the light fails? I want to remeasure uh, 80 of the best trees here or something. And uh, so I, I rush around, I pat them and say, oh boy, you've grown nice lot since I last put a tape round you. That sort of thing. And I look around and I sort of revel in being in a place where trees are happy because that's where they grow and that's where I like. After a storm, the leafy tree is no longer solid, but the pine still throws a full shadow. It has found a place to be. For a thousand years it will not give up this place. It seems that more and more people do want to know their trees. In the suburbs of London, Alan Mitchell takes groups on tree-watching expeditions, often from the top deck of a bus. At the Dublin Naturalists Field Club, Helen O'Reilly and friends do much the same thing in the local park. 
There's a demand every year of two outings a year, one with the leaves on, one with the leaves off. They want to know their trees. They're kind of ashamed as adults not to know an oak and a beech, a sycamore, a horse chestnut. They know them maybe in their leaves, but they don't know them in the winter. So Peter and I will be doing it in December. Isn't that beech beautiful Isn't again that now? Beautiful. Look at the colour of it. It's a particularly that. lovely morning to catch that with the colour. That's the first touch of cold brings on the colour in the leaves. Where the leaf is attached onto the branches is a bit of tissue. And the first touch of cold, that tissue changes and dies off and the leaf begins to fall. And as the water is cut off from the leaf, you get the change in colour. And then you have this. And when I was a small child, I was never let kick my heels in this. This is what I love. Even the dog loves it now. My mother would never let any of us do that. And I adore to do that. <laughs> the dog's as bad as me. But we're dying for the leaves all to come down so we can have a jolly good kick. As the leaves fall from our deciduous trees, we must look to the evergreen conifers to consider our forestry potential. Ireland can grow timber faster than any other European country, yet we do not produce enough timber to meet our own needs. Only 5% of the country is under forest, the lowest of the EEC countries. Denmark has 11%, France has 25%, West Germany has 29%. The Society of Irish Foresters, in their book The Forests of Ireland, highlight our abnormally low afforestation level of 5%. Sean McBride has always believed in our forestry potential. In the late 40s, he made it a condition for his participation in government that his afforestation policy was accepted. It was, but the annual planting rate wasn't adhered to. Two things that bother me. First of all, that we haven't kept up the plantation rate of 25,000 acres a year, which had been decided upon by the government and by the Dáil. And all those have been decided upon, it wasn't carried out by the civil servants. I mean, and I feel that this is a typical case of a way in which sometimes civil service is able to thwart the policy decided upon by the government. So that's very disappointing. The other thing that disappointed me was that uh, obviously the trees planted way back in the 1948s 49.50, are now coming on stream and no adequate provisions had been made for their utilisation. So that when this timber came on stream, uh, there's a general flat, no plans had been made as to how to utilise it. And we had the absolutely ludicrous situation in which uh, the timber was exported to Sweden at the rise rate of one pound per tonne uh, in my lifetime, I remember well every uh, sheet of paper that we used was made here. Uh, the newspapers were printed on Irish paper. Now we import all that paper from abroad. Inevitably, uh, the demand for paper is going to increase very considerably. And also to make paper, you need timber. In uh, the last few years, because of budget constraints, uh, we are falling somewhat short of our target. But... Uh, in the last uh, 30 years, the area under state plantations in this country has about tripled. Forestry Inspector Michael O'Donovan. Uh, you see, it takes uh, timber in this country roughly 40 years to mature. 
And uh, while that might seem a long period, I think people would want to bear in mind that in Scandinavian countries, uh, it takes about 170 years for the, to achieve the same uh, growth that we have in 40 years in this country. Because uh, our climate is so suited to mm. fast-growing timber, mm. is it not logical that we should plant more and achieve a higher target in order to avoid importing timber? I think that uh, every forestry person in this country would agree with you. Uh, it's purely a question of uh, sufficient finance being made available. I think uh, it's a short-sighted policy. We can all look at countries like New Zealand where they started from scratch, uh, the same as we did at the beginning of this century. And at the moment, forestry is making the single biggest contribution uh, to the economy of New Zealand, e even more so than the sheep, for which it is noted. While the Forest and Wildlife Service provides a growing number of forest walks and nature trails around the country, they are often criticised for not planting enough broadleaf trees, like beech or oak. Only three out of every hundred trees planted by the Forestry Department is of deciduous species. Apart from the obvious amenity value they would have, people like Jim O'Donnell of West Cork would argue that they could form the basis of a furniture industry for Ireland. If you think about a furniture, a piece of furniture, you take a tree and you develop it and, and you, you machine it and you make tr chairs from it. Now the, the value added is colossal. If you take that same tree and you make stakes out of it or you make uh, firewood out of it, the value added is practically nothing. I would feel in the long term that furniture made from hardwood will always be uh, a quality product, always be a desirable product. I think we should, in the next phase of forestry development in this country, we should put far more attention to hardwoods and far more attention to deciduous trees. And we should change the policy of only allocating uh, land unsuitable for agriculture to trees. We should also allocate land that is marginal, that is not really suitable for agriculture or only suitable for agriculture in a marginal way. We should allocate that to trees as well. For those interested in tree planting, advice and grants are available. Ontashka and the recently formed Tree Council of Ireland have information leaflets and school packs designed to encourage people to plant trees. Local tree groups are active throughout the country and they are anxious to work with their local authorities. Richard Webb. The local authority should have a programme of tree planting over a five-year period. And for example, for each year within that five years, the local authority should plant trees in one town and say three or four villages one year and then to one town another town and three or four other villages the next year and at the end of that five-year period you would have transformed the environment of these towns and villages at very little cost when you formed the tree council of ireland you focused on a very successful campaign of tree planting in los angeles do we need something similar here in ireland well that was a very interesting project where the tree people in California had set themselves a target over four years to plant one million trees in Los Angeles to combat the problem of smog and air pollution. They achieved that in the four years with about four days to spare. It got the imagination of all the people of Los Angeles, I'm it sure. It did, yes. It now, had to, to plant a million trees. Yes, it's a tremendous undertaking. Now, we could possibly do the same thing here. For example, 1985 has been designated by the United Nations as International Youth Year. Now, in Ireland, we have certainly a million young people between the ages of 12 and 24. 
which is the definition of youth. Now, if every one of those young people simply planted one tree during 1985, we could plant a million trees. I planted a horse chestnut tree and it grew a small bit and it's still growing now and I water it about once a week and I look after it. I like to look at trees, I like to see the, 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 the wildlife that, that uses them, I like to see them growing up, I like to see the leaves falling, I like to touch trees and I would strongly recommend and suggest to people that if they do feel that they have to knock down a tree that they at least replant another tree and preferably two trees in its place. I think it's an investment for themselves, you know, it should really please themselves and please their children and their children's children. <laughs>